No, I really should do a Twitch stream if I'm going to do this. I, I really should get a Twitch stream if so I can just do this all day, every day. I mean, I can't even imagine that, though, because there are people who make a living twitching every day. But I feel like I kind of willed something to happen where I don't think I'd ever mentioned Twitch before. I don't, the other day I joked, you know, I should, I, should, I should just do a Twitch stream. I'm doing this so much. But... Uh, you know, I don't think I'd ever mentioned, I don't think I'd ever acknowledged the existence of Twitch on here. And I also, I mentioned how there's a guy, like a young communist, and he, he explicitly identifies as a socialist or communist who makes, you know, ungodly amounts of money just by Twitch streaming and talking about probably video games and communism. Oh, geez, sounds great. <laughs> uh, sounds great. Where can I find him? <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but anyway, I feel kind of, to quote a friend of mine, sickly responsible, because I just mentioned him in the last couple of days. I'd never even, I, I just became aware of this guy. And there's another guy who does the same thing. There are these two young guys, and I'm not going to name them. And I guess they're both ultra famous online and even beyond the internet because they Twitch stream and they talk about like video games and communism, my favorite things. And I, I, I just recently I kind of was interested in, you know, I didn't I didn't even read up on him, but I just kind of I read a couple things about him because I'm like, huh, you know, I'm always interested when someone's managed to reach some high level of fame or notoriety and I've never heard of them, which, you know, becomes more and more common, you know, especially with the Internet being what it is. But today I just randomly saw, you know, a couple headlines, I guess you say. Uh, that said both those guys got banned from Twitch today. <laughs> both those guys got banned from Twitch today for using anti-white slurs. Because, you know, people have become convinced that it's totally fine to say whatever you want about the white men. People have become convinced that you can just say whatever you want. So I, I haven't even heard of that. I haven't even heard of anybody getting banned for anti-white slurs. But I feel somehow psychically responsible that like I acknowledge the existence of these kids in the last two days. I become aware of these kids very recently. And then today they both get banned for using anti-white slurs, which sounds about right. You know, my understanding, too, is that these are a couple of these young types of liberal guys, leftist guys. I don't think they would identify as liberal. They're the types who are like a, a liberal is actually right wing. I'm so I'm so far left that a liberal's a right a right winger. I think they're those types of kids, and they're the same types of dudes who are like, "There's no cancel culture. Everybody gets what they deserve. It's called consequences." You ever heard of consequences? And meanwhile, they get banned and are probably outraged. Like I thought I could get away with saying slurs against somebody. I'm punching up. I'm punching up. It's like you're worth more money than most of white America. And you did it by talking about video games and communism. But anyway, enough about them. I just thought it was weird. Well, the sickly responsible thing, just to explain where that comes from. When I was in high school, you know, the Iraq war and Afghanistan were going on. And... Uh, you know, they were going on yesterday too, right? But no, they, they were going, they started around that time. And there was a guy that I used to play football with and he had an older brother who was a football star and just a very popular guy. I didn't know his brother. He was 
three or four years older. But his brother had gone off to, I believe, Iraq, and he was injured. He ended up getting injured in Iraq. And when he got injured, both my best friend and I were in newspaper class together, and they ran an article about it. They ran an article about how this guy got injured. And uh, my friend told me a story. He was like, oh, man, that's weird. Uh, you know, uh, about a year ago, because we knew these little kids. My my closest friends were all skateboarders. They were all sponsored by the local shops. They were very into it. And by that time, like I, I skateboarded for like a year when I was 12, but I stopped skateboarding. But because all my closest friends were very involved, I would hang out at the skate park. And, you know, a lot of people that I knew were involved in skateboarding. And they had kind of, you know, mentored these younger kids who were quite a few years younger. There were these two brothers in particular who my friends kind of took under their wing and they were insane. These brothers, they were like four years younger than us. So they were probably like 13 years old, like 12 and 13 years old. And, you know, we weren't the type of people like we would never hang out with 12 year olds when we were 17 or 18. You know, we're not sick. But, you know, people, you know, people like recruit youngsters who prove themselves. You know, it's like the mafia or something where the mafia, like a guy in the mafia on the street, he'll get a teenager to just do things for him and run errands. And he kind of teaches him how things are. And that happened a lot. I saw that play out at the skate park where, you know, when my friends were younger, some of the older guys who were like 20 years old would buy them beer, invite them to parties and hang out, you know, because they were, they were essentially just teaching them what it is. You know, they were, they took them under their wing. It was cool. It's cool to see that take place. I hope that's still going on. But, uh, my friends in turn did that with these younger kids. But the only reason they were willing to hang out with these younger kids is because they were freaking out of their minds. Like the sorts of things they would do, like pranks. They, they were truly like, you know, the, one of the kids, like there was a teen center nearby and one of the young kids, like he went into the computer lab of the teen center or like, or the rec room, I think it was. And he took a shit behind the TV and, you know, I don't like bathroom stuff. I'm not a bathroom guy. I'm not into bathroom humor. I, I would prefer not to be talking about this, but this it's still, it's, it's worth telling like where this little kid went and he like took a shit behind the TV in the rec center of the, in the rec room of the teen center. So nobody would find it immediately. And so these kids were willing to do things like that. And so my friends took them under their wing and would occasionally get them stoned and that kind of thing. But going back to the Iraq war thing, not to forget the Iraq war, um, my friends had gone over to one of the little kids houses because he was being babysat and the babysitter would just let them do whatever. So basically they were having their own little party and the babysitter was a little bit older. And so she invited a bunch of her friends over and it turned out she, she was having a going away party for this guy who was going off to Iraq. And my friend, he's, he told me that it was this kid. It was the, I know there's a lot of na- a lot of people I'm talking about here. He was so-and-so's brother and he was this guy's brother and he had a brother. You know, I know, I know this is kind of one of those stories, but and he was like a brother to him, you know, because he didn't have a brother. <laughs> no, but my my best friend was there. And I think like the, the skateboarding kids were like smoking weed in the basement. 
And the babysitter was having this going away party for the guy who was going to Iraq, the one who would later be injured. And uh, my friend like walked upstairs and he kind of like looked out into the kitchen and he saw the babysitter, this uh, girl go like, I just want to say like, so-and-so is going to Iraq. And I just want to say like, give him a, give him a good send off. You know, she gave this big speech about how he's going to Iraq and it's this big deal. And my friend just stoned, like watched it through a crack in a door, like, like a voyeur. And so when he was injured, he told me that story. He was like, yeah, it was so weird that I watched his going away party through the crack in the door, you know, just like almost like not even being there, you know, just observing this. And then he got injured, and then a very short time later, that guy, when he got out of the hospital, he immediately went back into action, and he dove on a grenade, I believe it was, and was killed. So he just got out of the hospital after being injured in the war, and then he he dove on a grenade the next time he was in combat and got killed. And I told my friend that. I was like, hey, that guy got killed. And my friend just got quiet. And he looked down and he goes, I feel sickly responsible. It's almost like he felt like because he saw that going away party and it was so weird and cinematic, it's almost like he felt like he was responsible, like somehow he willed it to happen. And I totally understand that. So that's how I feel about these Twitch streamers. My friend felt that way because he saw this, he kind of voyeuristically watched this going away party for this guy going off to Iraq and then he ended up killed. And so he felt this sense of responsibility for having kind of witnessed that cinematic turn of events. And that's how I feel about these communist Twitch streamers. It's like, I feel like because I mentioned them the other day and now they got banned for anti anti white slurs. I feel like somehow I willed that to happen. I don't feel too responsible though. But anyway, you know, tonight I'm thinking about Buddhism, Buddhism, you know, which, uh, you know, specifically the way that Buddhism deals with women, because you don't hear about that much, that very much. You don't hear about Buddhist views on women. It doesn't really enter into this Western pop Buddhism that most people here are more familiar with. Like, obviously, we know that monks are typically separated. Like, monks and nuns don't usually share the same facility. And there's celibacy and, and all of that. But, you know, traditional views on Buddhism are very harsh on women. Not necessarily cruel, but it could certainly be considered misogynistic, where the common view was that women are unclean because they menstruate, because they give birth, because they're on the receiving end sexually. There's a belief that women are inherently unclean. And that's actually a phrase that's used in the Bible as well, where it refers to women as unclean. And another idea in historic Buddhism is that women cannot attain enlightenment. What women can hope for is to be a good lay person, to be a good wife, with the hope that they will be 
karmically reincarnated as a man who can then attain enlightenment. And it's interesting to me because, you know, so much of my introduction to Buddhism growing up and including if I didn't do my own reading, if I didn't do my own study, I wouldn't even really know most of this stuff. Even though I've known Buddhists my entire life, even though a lot of this pop Buddhism has entered mainstream culture, that doesn't come up much. And a lot of pop Buddhism is very female-friendly. And most of the Buddhists, virtually all of them that I've known, are women. And, you know, I mean, you can see where the Catholic Church has female priests now. You can see where Christianity has come to be far more progressive when it comes to including women and the role that women play. And Buddhism reflects that as well. Obviously, times have changed, and these older religions have become much more accommodating. You know, the idea of a Buddhist nun is not entirely uncommon now. But it's interesting that it doesn't enter the conversation nearly as much as it does when people are talking about Christianity. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. And if you try to kind of unravel it, you find a lot of justification. You find a lot of... I don't know. What I've noticed is researching this a little bit, not that I've delved in that deep, just doing a little bit of research over the last couple years, is it seems like Buddhist historians go to a great deal of effort to point out the exceptions to that, to, to point out the exceptions to that traditional view of women in Buddhism and to find ways of almost justifying it or painting it as something other than what it was. Whereas, you know, people seem ready to talk about the misogyny or whatever you want to call it found in Christianity, past or present. But it's, it's definitely there in Buddhism. Because people will be like, well, this branch was way more accommodating to women and this one wasn't. And, you know, but, but so-and-so said that women could do this. You know, you find a lot of that. And that's good. I mean, it's good that... It's good that people are, are looking for the exceptions. It's, it's good that people are, are trying to... I'm glad that people aren't just trying to condemn some of the traditional practices in Buddhism for those views. But in many ways, it's the view is just as harsh, if not harsher in a spiritual sense, than some of Christianity's attitudes toward women. Where Buddhism demanded subservience from women, expected them to be wholly loyal to their husband, and said straight up that basically you can't directly participate in this. You can't understand this, and you are unclean. Your body, the functions of your body make you unclean. And I'm going to read a little passage here. It's from a, a book that I, I read. A, I read a passage from this every morning at random. I just open it at random. 
And there's one, I don't know if that it directly pertains to this, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It's called Not Mixing Up Buddhism. And this was compiled by Jack Kornfield, who's a very progressive guy. I've listened to Jack Kornfield talk in interviews. I'm familiar with him. But Jack Kornfield, he just compiled this. It's a collection of teachings. You know, he didn't write it or anything, but he just, it's a collection of various Buddhist parables and stories going back, you know, and translations going back throughout its history. And this one's called Not Mixing Up Buddhism. Once a monk, uh, start over. Once a monk on a pilgrimage met a woman living in a hut. The monk asked, do you have any disciples? The woman said, yes. The monk said, where are they? She said, the mountains, rivers, and earth. The plants and trees are all my disciples. The monk said, are you a nun? She said, what do you see me as? He said, a lay person. The woman in the hut said, you can't be a monk. The monk said, you shouldn't mix up Buddhism. She said, I'm not mixing up Buddhism. The monk said, are you mixing up Buddhism this way? She said, you're a man. I'm a woman. Where has there ever been any mix-up? You're a man. I'm a woman. Where has there ever been any mix-up? I don't know. I don't understand the point of that. And it's not a koan. You know, because the point of, say, a Zen koan is to pretty much present an unanswerable riddle with the idea that you will transcend the need to find right and wrong answers in the in the koan. You know, that's the idea behind a koan is that it's it's it basically cracks your brain. It's like a double bind. It's a question that you can't actually answer. So it forces you to transcend basically your expectations for reality. And, uh, you know, a lot of koans are, you know, they're things that you've heard that are completely cliche now. Like, what's the sound of one hand clapping is one. And, uh, but the thing is, you find them all over. Life is filled with koans, too. Politics are a koan. Like trying to find the right political party, trying to find the right view on a given political issue, that could be viewed as a koan. Because I know personally, many times I, I realize there's no right answer. And there's no completely wrong answer either. And trying to find one kind of forces you to transcend the expectation that you'll find one. It forces you beyond logic. But that isn't that the thing I just read, not mixing up Buddhism, doesn't seem to be a koan. It's not presented as a koan. But I don't entirely understand the dialogue. I don't entirely understand the point it's getting at. It involves roles. Because he asks the woman if she's a nun. And she she asks him if he's a layperson. And, uh, you know, the, she tells him he can't be a monk. And then he tells her not to mix up Buddhism. And then it concludes with, 
you're a man, I'm a woman, where has there ever been any mix-up? Which seems to emphasize, you know, the differences between men and women in Buddhism. And he seems to, you know, he seems to be judging her or has some sort of expectation as to what her role should be, maybe. I don't know. I feel like I'm editorializing by thinking that. But it emphasizes that she's a man, he's a woman. Where has there ever been any mix-up? Well, ask that question today and, you know, you're going to be in a mess. You're going to be in a mess. You're a man, I'm a woman. Where has there ever been any mix-up? But, you know, despite Eastern religion having these, like, hermaphroditic gods and men who appear as women and all of that, it does tend to strictly define men and women and what their roles should be, especially in a spiritual context, but also just in life, in practical life. And you can say that's a, ref- a reflection of the times when these ideas developed, but you also find it the world over. And yeah, there are exceptions, but it's still it's a trend that you find the world over especially in a spiritual context or religious context. But yeah, if you understand that one or you have a take on it, let me know. Because I don't quite understand it. I can't quite wrap my brain around what exactly is being communicated there. And I know some interpretations of the different roles expected of men and women in Buddhism. I've seen some interpretations where, you know, Modern historians or Buddhist philosophers will try to say, well, it's not that they meant women can't be this. It's not that they didn't think women could achieve this in Buddhism. It's that there are certain roles that are more feminine and certain roles that are more masculine. So it's not referring to men and women themselves. It's referring to certain roles as being inherently feminine and inherently masculine. A man could hold a feminine role in the context of Buddhism, and a woman could hold a masculine role in the context of Buddhism, but I I don't know how much of that is actually reflected in its history. That, to me, sounds like a degree of rationalization, and I think that's the word I was looking for, where I think beyond, like, you know, beyond the idea that the world has progressed in certain ways and religion has had to adapt to it, which we've, we've seen in Christianity as well, some parts of Christianity, but I would say all of it in some ways. Like I think about that sometimes when I see some of these Christian evangelical Republican politicians who are women, where they kind of go against the stereotype, you know, where these women are actually the more vocal and dominant, far more than their husbands. And they're the ones running for political office. They're the ones speaking out. So you can see where even in evangelical Christianity, we've seen big changes that have been gradual enough to where we don't necessarily even notice them. But in in Buddhism, I I see less rationalization for it in, in Christianity. It just, it seems to have gradually crept up. But in Buddhism, I've noticed like there is a degree of rationalization when dealing with these. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Western Buddhism is heavily liberal. It's associated with the left. It was popularized, you know, largely during the late 1960s, 1970s. 
it fed off of the hippie movement a lot. Virtually all Buddhists that I've known have been progressive leftists. So I think there's a degree of rationalization given that the history of Buddhism has some ideas that are certainly at odds with progressive leftism. And as much as you can say that it was a reflection of the times they lived in, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, what would have made people more, for lack of a better word, misogynistic then? What would have made them limit women more then in the East? I'm sure all kinds of factors. But still, I don't know what exactly would have made that a more logical reality then opposed to now, especially in the context of spiritual enlightenment. But it, it makes me think of, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama, because he's made some funny comments where uh, he's been asked a lot about women and the role of women, and he has some progressive views on that. In some ways, where he, the Dalai Lama, you know, he's open to women being involved. He's open to all that. But he's been asked about the possibility of a female Dalai Lama. And this isn't just a one-off comment. He has said this repeatedly multiple times. Where he once said, and I wrote this down to talk about it, but he said, if the Dalai Lama's reincarnation is female, she must be very attractive. The reason is so that she will have more influence on others. If she is an ugly female, she won't be very effective, will she? <laughs> so, uh, if she is an ugly female, she won't be very effective at being the Dalai Lama, will she? That's the Dalai Lama's belief. And that's not just a one-off flippant remark. That wasn't just a joke from him. He also said, and, and, and he said he was half joking, but he said he was half joking. But then another time, and these are years apart, these quotes are years apart. Another time he said, if the Dalai Lama's reincarnation is female, she must be very, oh, I don't know, that's the same one. Um, If a female Dalai Lama comes, that female must be very, very attractive, more useful. So he's saying that, again, he's saying that if, if the Dalai Lama is a, a fem is a female, she has to be an attractive female because that makes her more useful. Just kind of funny, you know, because it's, it's not something that you would expect necessarily. And he, he said that again another time. Let me see if I can find the quote. Let me just one second here. Excuse me, I'm I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. So he said Let's see, uh He was asked if the Dalai Lama could eventually be a woman, and he said yes. And he said, Why not? The female biologically has more potential to show affection and compassion. Therefore, I think females should take more important roles. And then 
If a female does come, her face should be very, very attractive. If, uh, he says, if a female Dalai Lama comes, then that female must be attractive. Otherwise, not much use. And then his interviewer said, you're joking, I'm assuming, or you're not joking. To which the Dalai Lama said, no, true. <laughs> no, true. <laughs> so it's like, and he said, he also said in an interview that he first thought about this 30 years earlier. So even 30 years before this interview, he was thinking about how if a female Dalai Lama were to come, she would have to be attractive. Otherwise, there would be no use. In order to be useful in that role, he felt that she would have to be attractive. And he said an ugly woman, he specifically said an ugly woman couldn't do that. So it's like even as it's become more progressive and it's come to be far more inclusive of women, far less harsh in its judgment of women. And I don't know that I would call it a judgment. And I mean, I use the word misogyny loosely. My own interpretation of it isn't that it's misogynistic. It's just very specific. It has a, a very specific take. You know, I, I'm, I don't necessarily brand all of this as misogynistic in a you know, I don't necessarily brand it that way to say that it, that they were tr deliberately trying to undermine women or mistreat them or anything like that. I just think they had a very specific understanding of what Buddhism was and the positions. And... Um, manner in which a person develops in the context of Buddhism. But you can see where even as it has become more inclusive and progressive, the Dalai Lama is still like, she's got to be hot. If there's going to be a female Dalai Lama, she's got to be hot. and She can't be an ugly chick. He, I mean, that's what he said. And, and both times that he referred to her, he, he said her face has to be very, very attractive. <laughs> he specifically said her face has to be very, very attractive. And then another time he said she has to be very, very attractive. So two varies. He believes that she can't just be very attractive. She has to be very, very attractive. And her face has to be because that will be more useful. So she has to use her beauty. She has to use her hotness. I don't know. I mean, I, I, who am I to argue with the Dalai Lama? I mean, I think I, if there was a woman who became the Dalai Lama, I think I would prefer her to be hot. I would prefer that. I would prefer a beautiful Dalai Lama over the alternative. Why not? What am I going to say? Uh, you know, it'd be better if she was ugly because we'd all learn a lesson about blah, blah, blah. So it, it's funny how it's, it's very superficial in that way, but it doesn't seem like it's superficial to him. A part of it might just be like the Dalai Lama, you know, is a horny celibate. You know, what, what Ram Dass referred to as a horny celibate. And, uh, you know, where he's just like, he's just imagining. He's just like, I, I hope she's hot. But it's funny because he's so popular with women. You know, you go over to a, a woman who's into meditation and yoga and Western Buddhism, and you'll inevitably see like a, a Dalai Lama book on her shelf or like a Dalai Lama fridge magnet. 
or something, like a quote from the Dalai Lama. Meanwhile, he's just like, she's got to be hot. <laughs> but I don't, you know, even though that's superficial and, you know, a part of it's just him probably being, you know, he's a, is he an incel? I don't know. But no, a part of it's probably just him, you know, just getting kind of giddy about the idea of a hot woman being the Dalai Lama. You know, he's talking about how that's a tool and he's talking about how that would be useful. Because she's going to get more attention. You know, people are going to have to do less work to pay attention to a hot Dalai Lama. D-O-L-L-Y Lama. No, people are going to have to do less work. They're going to have to do less spiritual work. They might be distracted by her beauty, but they're not going to be distracted by the fact that she's ugly either. Where they're like, well, she's kind of ugly, and that means I have to, like put a little bit of effort into caring but just something kind of funny that i've come across where you know when he said that the interviewer was like you're joking aren't you and he's like no (laughs) no uh he said no true (laughs) in broken english no true I would love to hear that conversation, though, because he said that when he first thought of it 30 years earlier, it was apparently in discussion with other monks. I would love to hear this conversation between Buddhist monks, Tibetan monks, where they're like, what do you think about the idea of a a woman sometimes having your your spot? Hey, Lama, what do you think about a woman maybe being in your role someday? Hmm. She has to be very, very attractive. And then another one's like, well, what about her face? Like her body or her face or her face? You know, just a very funny idea. But, uh, you know, it is interesting, though, that these religions in different parts of the world who in many ways are different. Obviously, there are parallels between even Christianity and Buddhism. But it's interesting to me that even in those two different religions, which... In the West, people make a huge distinction between them, maybe too much of a distinction. But in the West, um, there's this kind of belief that, you know, Buddhism is perfect. I mean, not, not obviously not among everybody, but the, the people who are Buddhist-friendly, people who are new-agey, even people who don't practice Buddhism or believe in it, have a tendency to think like, oh, well, Buddhism has it all figured out. They treat everyone really well. All of their views are perfectly in line with modern progressivism, when the reality is they're not. Not historically, and even now, they're they're certainly, you know, there's there's certainly people would certainly take issue with some of those comments. But he obviously did have a sense of humor about it. You know, he did say he's kind of thought about it half jokingly. You know, it's unlikely to happen, although now you never know. I mean, we could have a female pope. We could have a, we could have a woman pope tomorrow. But it's like to attain certain positions in Buddhism, you had to be a man. And the same is true for Christianity. You know, you don't have Catholic priests. You don't, or sorry, you don't, you don't have uh, female priests. You don't have female cardinals. You don't have a female pope. There's never been a female Dalai Lama. Women weren't even allowed to become monks. They weren't believed to be capable of achieving enlightenment. And, you know, 
I've known women who I would consider incredibly enlightened. I've known women who embody everything you would hope for from an enlightened person. And I say that not out of charity. I say that because it's the truth. And anybody who's ever been friends with women knows that they have plenty of wisdom to offer. But um, it is interesting to me that these there were some closed doors for certain. And I don't think that this was arbitrary either. I don't think that Buddhism arbitrarily excluded women. I don't believe that Christianity arbitrarily excluded uh, women either. You know, and Islam obviously speaks for itself. We know what Islam is like. But I don't hear much discussion of it either. I'm sure these discussions have taken place. And I would love to hear one that isn't rationalized. I would love to hear one that isn't padded. I would love to hear a good, honest, austere conversation, including Buddhist women, where this is addressed. And maybe I should put more effort into finding that because I would hope it exists. But it doesn't seem to come up. It's kind of like, it's somewhat of an elephant in the room, actually. And I wonder what the Dalai Lama thinks of ugly nuns. If he thinks that the, a female Dalai Lama would have to be just unbelievably attractive. What, what, what does he think about nuns? Do they just need to be kind of attractive? Like, if, if the female Dalai Lama in his mind has to be a 10 out of 10, does a female monk have to be a 7 or an 8? You know, what are his beauty standards anyway? What are the Dalai Lama's beauty standards? I mean, maybe a very, very attractive woman would be rel- relatively low on the ranking scale to the average guy. To these guys who have had very little sexual experience, if any, who have really only, you know, witnessed women from afar. You know, of course, he's known plenty of women and all that. Maybe he's not a virgin. I don't even know. See, I don't even know about that. I don't know at what age. I think the Dalai Lama, I believe, is usually selected at a very young age and has usually been in training since he was quite young. A lot of monks, too, especially in Tibet. So I I don't know how many of these guys have even had a single experience with women. And as I've said before, you know, you know, with incels, I think a lot of those guys, if they actually had experiences with a woman, especially an attractive woman, and they just got past that, they would find out that it might not even be that important to them. A lot of it's probably like insecurity and ego, and they're probably not meant to be a guy who's getting laid all the time. Dude, dude, you're never going to get laid. Dude, you, dude, where this this is a freaking sausage party, dude. I'm never going to get laid here. You know, it's, I don't think incels are meant to be guys who are out there getting laid all the time. And that's evident in the fact that they're not because not all of them are unattractive. Not all of them are total losers, but I think that, you know, part of it is just the fact that they live in a culture where being a monk is really not possible unless you want to role play. 
Because that's how I see it. Like, I knew a girl whose brother became a monk. I don't know his story. I, I don't know him. I, I barely know anything about it, his sister. But it seemed like kind of role-playing. It just, I don't know. Like, I've joked on here before that I would have become a monk if I lived in an earlier time. But it, I know too much. I've experienced too much. You know, that, not that that's a good excuse, but I don't need to become a monk. It's not for me to be a monk. But I do, when I look at incels, I'm like, man, if they lived in a culture where they could become monks, where they could commit to that, where it was reinforced, that might be the life for them. But I think in this culture, in this society, I think so many of them just need to get just past that, past that insecurity. I, I know not, in, not all incels are virgins, although many of them are. But they're men who really, really want something. And not even just sex alone. I don't know a lot about it. I've never really read up on incels. I'm, I'm not an incel. So I don't know what it's actually like to be an incel or what they actually want. I don't even know that they know what they want. I mean, I think they're looking for validation. That's my read on it. You know, many of them want girlfriends. Many of them want wives. I think many of them just want to get past the finish line once. And I think if they did that, and they felt some level of, you know, whatever, whatever level of accomplishment that gives them, sense of control, the sense that they're not being left out, because they're so resentful over that. They're so resentful over this perception that they've been left out of something. And you think about what they're feeling, which is, you know, I don't think in evolutionary terms. I don't think in, in terms of evolutionary biology about many things. But when you look at incels, you can say, like, on some core level, they feel that they're not being allowed to continue on. Like, their genetics aren't being allowed to continue on. They're basically being told... Oh, yeah, you don't get to do this. You don't get to be part of the future. Regardless of whether they want children or not, you know, that's what sex is. It produces offspring. It keeps your genetics alive on this planet. And so in some strange way, it's, it's like you don't get to keep on. Your genetics don't keep, get to keep going. And not only that, but you don't even get the pleasure of sex. You don't even get the validation of having a woman interested in you. And sure, a lot of that, they have themselves to blame. To some degree, they have a society that has reinforced, you know, really impotent behavior. A horrible diet, video games, Twitch. You know, so they live in a society that certainly hasn't done them any favors. Not that society is to blame. But then on top of that, many of them really haven't done the work themselves, and I don't even think they know how. I don't even think they know how to do the work themselves. And when they do, it's often framed in this way. Like, I see this a lot when I pay attention to fitness people. I may have mentioned this recently. I don't remember. But if you pay attention to fitness people, it's not just that they're giving advice on diet and weightlifting and how to get in good shape, how to get abs. Oh, I know, I know what I want to do. I want to listen to some guy tell me how I need to 
type my calories into a spreadsheet every day so that I can get perfect abs. I really want to listen to that, you know. But a lot of people, they don't just listen to these fitness guys because they tell them how to get in shape. They also give dating advice. They also give them advice on how to talk to women. I've come across this stuff where they're like, oh, you know, if you want to develop huge deltoids, you do this. And if you want to talk to a girl, all you have to do is keep the conversation going. She's not even going to care. If she's attracted to you, she's not even going to care what you're saying. But she's going to care that you can keep a conversation going and you listen to her. And ask her questions. A girl likes to be have questions asked. She likes to be listened to. Like They'll give advice like that. Not that it's bad advice or anything. But it is sort of, it, it does cross over with this sort of pickup artist thing of old, like giving you tips and tricks. So it's good that young men want to get in shape. But a lot of it's framed around getting attention from women. And I'm lucky that like when I decided to get into fitness, first of all, I was, I was like 30. So that was good. That I was already, I'd already gotten validation from women in my life. I was past my 20s. And I had a girlfriend at the time too. So it's like I was getting in shape, but I wasn't trying to be more attractive for her. I wasn't trying to attract other women. So my motivation for getting in shape was purely my own motivation. It had nothing to do with, like my girlfriend didn't even like that I was getting in shape. Like, she had kind of gotten taken in by the whole, like, fat-shaming thing where, like, the idea that you're torturing yourself by having discipline and running and, you know, trying to lose weight, trying to build muscle. Like, she kind of had gotten taken in by that way of thinking where it was like, oh, it's bad to push yourself really hard because it means you hate yourself. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Like, getting in shape is an act of love. It's an act of love, honey. You know, she couldn't understand that completely. But fortunately, I had a girlfriend at the time. So it's not like I was like, I'm going to get in shape because, you know, I'm going to get so many girls numbers, dude. So that was not even a part of my motivation. And so by and then by the time we broke up, like my discipline was already there. And I already knew what I wanted to get out of fitness. So there was really no part of it that was like, oh, I'm doing this to get girls. So that's an unfortunate thing I see. Like, not that getting into, if you want to attract women, getting in shape is, of course, a good thing to do. But I see where it's bundled with this idea that, like, you're doing it for other people. You're doing it for women. That's not spiritually sound to me. You know, it's not spiritually sound to me to, like, lift weights and uh, get lean get lean because you want attention from women it's a good way to get women to notice you physically but to me it's just not a very spiritually sound approach for yourself but i see where like the men who are doing stuff for self-improvement even the self-improvement seems to be hinged on getting validation which i don't think is a good thing but it's better than the alternative of just becoming nastier and nastier, playing more and more video games, eating more and more terrible food, not moving around physically. 
I mean, I saw something yesterday that said that millennials, millennia, the, the millennials are on track to be the most obese generation in history. I don't know many, I don't have many friends from my generation who are obese. I was actually very surprised to hear that. I would have thought that a lot of the obesity is in older generations. And actually what it said is that millennials are on track, meaning as we age, and I do say we because I am one. Oh, no, I'm not a millennial, dude. I don't identify as a millennial. I, I, I've, always, I've always felt that I'm more Gen X. People always say I'm old for my age. I'm more, gen, I'm more of a Gen X. I'm more of a Gen X. No, I'm, I'm a main millennial. I think the first millennials were a few years older than me. I know my sister's a Gen Xer. She's a Gen Xer. And she was born in 1978. I think the first millennials are like 1981, maybe. I don't know. Generations have gotten weird. Time and the, the Ouroboros swallowing more of its own tail, I believe, has made generations smaller. I think we need to catch up to that because we're still talking about generations. Like there's a solid, what, 15 years in which somebody belongs to the same generation. Because there's a distinct difference between older millennials and younger millennials, and maybe that's true of every generation. But to me, it's to the point where they don't seem to have that much in common at all. They grew up in different technological eras. They experienced different eras of technology that fundamentally changed their personalities and interests. So it's hard for me to say that millennials are truly all the same generation but anyway, this study showed that millennials are on track to be the most obese generation in history, especially as we age. They suspect that we will just keep putting it on. That surprised me, to be honest. Like, I know obesity rates are high. I've seen some of these maps that show how obesity rates have changed in the United States over the decades. And it's shocking, actually. Like, and none of this is new to me. I know the whole, oh, America's gotten fatter. Oh, big fat Americans, huh? All these big fat Americans, you know. I know all those talking points, and I've heard them for years. But it's still kind of shocking sometimes when you see the data. And I saw this map showing obesity rates throughout the United States, and it was comparing 1990 to the last 10 years. And it was actually very shocking how much it's changed, how much more obese things are. And you think about it, like, I do see a lot of obese people when I go out in the world, at the store. Like, now that I actually think about it, I come across obese people frequently. I don't think about it, though. You know, I'm aware of obesity. But really, unless somebody's inconveniencing me in some way, I don't think about it. Like, I don't go in the store and think, oh, boy, uh, like to quote the Sopranos, boy, you're fat. Boy, you're fat. Steve, Steve Buscemi's line, Buscemi, you say Buscemi, I say Buscemi. Oh, you say Buscemi, I say Buscemi. No, but Steve Buscemi has that line, which I think he's quoting an old movie or something, but boy, you're fat. Like, I don't, I don't see a fat person and think that, unless I'm being inconvenienced. Like, I was at the grocery store a couple months ago, and there were these two just really big sisters and I tried to go down the drink aisle and they were standing side by side, just taking up the entire drink aisle and just standing there like they didn't know what they wanted to get. 
They didn't know which sodas they wanted. And so I was like, damn, I guess I don't need a soda today because I don't feel like waiting. And then I, I went around the aisle, and sure enough, as I went around the aisle, they had moved, and they were now in front of me, walking in the area, like not down a single aisle, but whatever you call that area between the aisles and the checkout stands. You know, it's like the highway. I think of that as the highway of the grocery store. And they were once again walking side by side, which, you know, is really not very self-conscious. You know, it's like when a group is walking on the sidewalk and they're walking horizontally and you're coming toward them. One of them, at least one, if not two of them, needs to fall in line. You know, if they have any awareness, if they have any level of politeness, if you and your friends are taking up the entire sidewalk and someone's walking toward you, at least one or two of you needs to fall into single file. Not everybody does that. And they don't always do it to be jerks either. They just don't seem to be aware. And I've bumped shoulders with those people before. Like I've just, like if I'm in, sometimes I'm in a mood where I'm just, I'm very accommodating. Where like I don't have, I'll, I'll walk into the road a little bit to get around somebody. There are other times where I'm just in this mood where I'm like, nobody's going to break my stride. I'm the same way with crosswalks. Where like sometimes I'll walk up to a crosswalk and there'll be cars coming and I just walk out there. And I'm like, yeah, I know you're a big, tough car and you could absolutely destroy my life in, the, in a split second. But sometimes I just have this mood where I'm like, I'm just going to walk out here and stare at you and you're going to stop. Other times I'm just like, I'll wait. I'll wait for you to go. I'll wait for all the cars to go. I'm the same way with people where like sometimes when people are taking up the entire sidewalk, I'm just like, I'll walk around you, whatever. Other times I'm just like, I'm going to, you're not going to break my stride. I'm going to stay, I'm just going to stay straight right here. And it's awkward because like I've walked right in the middle of a group of guys before and just bumped shoulders with two of them. It's really stupid of me to do. It's really aggressive. But at the same time, like if I, if I feel like somebody is not being polite, I'll just, I'll do that. But I don't, I try not to because it's just, it's stupid to do that. Honestly, I don't say that to sound tough. I'm just saying like, I, it's been a long time since I've done anything like that. But sometimes if I'm just in the wrong mood, I'm just like, our shoulders are going to bump because you're not doing the right thing. But these two sisters in the grocery store, sure enough, like I, I try to like get away from them, but then I just end up right behind them again. And they're not just taking up a single individual aisle in the grocery store. They're taking up the entire highway that area between the, the aisles and the, and the checkout stands. And I was just like, oh, like I was, I, it was one of those days where I just, I wanted to be a laser beam bouncing off the walls of the store where I know exactly what I want. And I'm just going to, I know exactly where I'm going. And I just ricochet. I just ricochet in and out of the grocery store in, a, in like two minutes. It was one of those days. And so I ended up going around them and I didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't bump shoulders with them. Okay. I didn't touch them, but I, I ended up going around them because there was a little space where I could go around them. And when I did that, like one of them, like she kind of like ended up stepping on her sister's heel. And of course, like the sister was like, ow, you know, she just like bumped her like foot bumped her sister's foot. But some people are like that. They're like babies who cry when they're not even hurt. It's like they know that if something like bumps into them, it could hurt. And so it becomes this theater where it's like, oh, because there's a possibility that something can hurt, 
I'm going to act like it hurt and go, ow. I mean, I even do that around the house, you know. I, I know that feeling because I do it. Where, like, sometimes, like, I'll, I'll be walking around the house and, like, I bump, I bump into a counter. And before I even know if it hurts, I, I say ow to myself out loud by myself. And then I realize it didn't hurt at all and I feel stupid. It was one of those sorts of moments where, like, the sister, her foot just kind of bumped her sister's foot because I guess she didn't expect somebody to go around her. And uh, the, the sister's like, ow. And then the one who bumped into her was like, sorry, but people are freaking rude. You know, she tried to, like, call me out indirectly. And I didn't say anything. You know, honestly, I felt bad, and I even feel bad now. Because, like, who knows what their story is? They were obviously sisters. They were almost identical. Realistically, they were, like, five foot two, like, 350 pounds each. They were huge, you know, for their size. And, uh, you know, I thought about it afterward, and I was like, you know, I don't, I don't even know the story there. I mean, like, they could have had something tragic happen in their lives. You know, maybe they lost a parent when they were young. Maybe something horrible happened, and they cope through binge eating. You know, you hear about those sorts of stories. Like, sometimes you'll see one of those, like, my 800-pound life type shows, and the person's like, yeah, you know, like, I, I got in a car accident with my dad when I was five, and I watched him, you know, get pierced by like a piece of metal or something, you know, and that that's why I'm 800 pounds, you know, so it's like, I don't judge people for being big, you know, that kind of thing. But I, so I, I didn't want to be like mean or anything. But then it was just that they were taking up so much space. Like they were very large people. They were walking side by side everywhere they went in the grocery store. So they were inconveniencing everybody else. They didn't seem to have self-awareness about it. It was just one of those things where it was just like, I noticed they were fat, not because they were fat. It was because their fatness, honestly, was inconveniencing other people. It's one of those sorts of things. And then on top of that, you could tell they kind of had a bad attitude about it. Like, I tried to go around them as tactfully as I could, and they made a big scene about it. And I didn't engage them. I didn't say anything. And honestly, I felt bad about it. I was just like, that sucked. It wasn't like, God damn them. No, screw them. I was just like, that sucked. But anyway, uh, talking about fatness and stuff. And like I said, I have fat credibility. You know, I spent like 20 years of my life being fat. I know what it is to be fat. I was on the fat side of fat. I wasn't obese, but I was a fat kid. And you know what, it's, I didn't, I would never want to be that way again, if I could help it. Not because of other people's judgment, but because I just felt like shit all the time. I seriously felt like shit. And you know what, I was also extremely negative for no reason. Like I had a great childhood. I had a loving mom. I was able to do everything I wanted to do. But I had such a cynical and nasty negative outlook, and I didn't lose that for a long time. Like, it stayed with me. It wasn't bitterness either. I just kind of had a negative outlook all the time. But when I look back, it's like I felt like absolute shit all the time. My body felt like shit. Clothes felt awful. Like, you'd get a new t-shirt, and it would, like, hug my gut, you know, just in the, in the perfect way to bother me all day. Like, clothes had to be the perfect cut. 
Otherwise, like some weird part of them would hug me. You know, it's that sort of thing. Like, God forbid a t-shirt has like a European, like, I remember ordering like metal shirts online when I was a teenager. And like, I always dreaded if they had kind of a European cut. Because like a European large is more like a medium, or at least it used to be. I don't know what globalism has done to shirt sizes. But it used to be you'd order a shirt from Europe and it would uh, fit more and, and not just fit more. It's kind of like Old Navy. I never wore much Old Navy, but Old Navy T-shirts were like that. It's like they were designed for men who were like tall with man boobs is how I felt. Like all those shirts, it's like they were designed to show off what they call man boobs, a phrase I hate. But uh, that's what they're called. It felt like Old Navy shirts and European band shirts. Like hugged all the worst parts of the male anatomy if you weren't in perfect shape. And because I was fat, it was even worse. It's like, oh, here's a cut of t-shirt. Like the European shirts, like they were cut so they hug your torso. And then they had very open necks. Not like a big oval where it's deliberately designed that way, but just a normal t-shirt from these European distributors would have like a big open neck really short sleeves like really short and then the torso would be it would just hug your body in all the worst places while being too long too so if you're fat it just makes you look like an idiot it makes you feel like an idiot like oh here's a t-shirt that's gonna like reveal too much of your upper chest it's going to reveal your too much of your upper arms and it's going to hug your your boobs and your belly. <laughs> that's flattering. You know, it, that's how it felt though and you felt like shit all day. So it's like one of the reasons I would never want to be fat again is just like buying clothes sucked because it would just be like everybody's fat in different ways too. And there's honestly there's people who look good fat. There's people who look worse when they lose weight. There's women who look worse when they lose weight. And as I've said before, like, I like a girl to have a little extra weight on her. I don't, I've never been attracted to skinny girls. For me, my standards are like, I want you to have a womanly shape. Like, I want a woman to have a womanly shape. And if you're so heavy that you lose your womanly shape, or if you have a body that doesn't really have one to begin with... Well, that's, I'm just not going to be attracted to it. I don't think you're subhuman or anything. I'm just not going to be attracted to that. But for me, like, like, I'll see big girls. I'll see girls who are actually heavier than I would ever like. But they'll have a pretty face, and they'll have a womanly shape. And I'm like, she's hot. And I was saying this to Miles the other day. We were actually talking about this subject, like we always are. All of this shit just bleeds into our conversations, but... I was saying to him, like, the problem I have with them putting all these heavy women on a pedestal is it breaks. <laughs> no, uh, the pedestal breaks. Oh, man. But uh, the problem I have with it is, like, they'll pick women who just aren't even attractive at all. And I know the whole idea is that there's no one standard of beauty. Yeah, there is. No, we're not all attracted to the same exact women. I'm not saying that. But it's like there are women who just aren't very attractive. And the Dalai Lama agrees they can't be the Dalai Lama if they're unattractive. He said it, not me. That's the Dalai Lama here. 
But uh, you'll see these women like on the covers of magazines, and it's like she's not even attractive. It's not that she's fat. It's that she's not even, she's not hot fat. She's not a hot fat. Because I, I could point out, I could find women who are hot and fat, but they're not that. So it's like, not only are you doing this whole posturing nonsense where you're like trying to like redefine beauty and get around fat shaming and all that, but you're not even choosing the right people. You know, and Miles has been saying this for years, like long before the whole trans thing was a big talking point at the forefront of our culture. He was, he, he's always said like some people are good at looking that way. Not that you're attracted to it. As a man who likes women, I'm not attracted to trans people. I'm not attracted to trans women, but there are some who manage to pull it off. Like they, they look, it's, it's like, you know, any article of clothing. Like somebody can wear a leather jacket and look like they're meant to wear a leather jacket and look good in it. It doesn't mean other people shouldn't wear a leather jacket, but you'll see somebody else in the same leather jacket and they look like a freaking poser. They look like somebody who is like, I want to wear a leather jacket so I can, I can look like a person who wears leather jackets, but they'll never be that. They'll never be a person who looks authentic wearing a leather jacket. It's just, it's, you know, not everybody is meant to do everything. Not everybody is meant to look good. But anyway, we got off on, see, start talking about Buddhist views on women and the Dalai Lama's views on attractiveness. And we just got into like analyzing women's bodies. It's a slippery slope. It's the truth, though. I'm just speaking from the heart. Speaking from the heart here, where like I, I find some women, some fat women, attractive. And I don't use fat as an insult to say that. I'm just saying they're fat. But some of these people who are put on a pedestal, I'm just like, they're not even attractive. I don't even know what point you're actually trying to make. And people might be more welcoming of this. People might be more welcome, welcoming of your blatant signaling when you put certain people on magazine covers if you started with the hot ones. But you're not choosing them because you're trying to make too many points at once, which isn't that these days in a nutshell. You're trying to make too many points at once. And not only that, you've telegraphed it. We know what you're doing. We know exactly what you're doing. It's paint by numbers. Like, I'm not a Lana Del Rey fan. One of my best friends is a fanatic. She collects all the vinyl. Like, you go over to her house, and she has, like, Lana... Like, she'll just have, like, brand new Lana Del Rey limited edition LPs on display. Merch. She's a fanatic. Like, I've listened to the records over at her house. I don't care. Like, it's not my kind of music. It doesn't really sound like anything to me. But uh, she's hot. And I, I guess she got fat, but she still looks good. Like, maybe a little bit bloated, because there's a difference between bloated fat. Like, some people get fat and it looks natural. Other people look bloated and weird. Like, I know that, like, when I've... If I start smoking weed again 
and I binge eat a lot, which I always do if I'm smoking weed. I can't stop. If I'm smoking weed, I stay up all night binge eating. And after like two weeks of doing that, I don't put permanent weight on, but I put per- I, I put temporary bloat on. And I look like shit. I look stupid. I look completely stupid. Where it's like I look in the mirror and I look at my stomach and it just... It's just a nasty look. It's not the same as like slowly building up weight over time. It's like you put on this bloat. And there are some people who are both. They've put on weight over time, but they also eat so much all the time that they're bloated and they're actually fat. And that's a bad look. But there are some people who like they almost look like uh, like there's a certain sort of heavy girl who's got kind of a natural tan. Like she's got kind of a naturally tan or olive complexion and she doesn't look bloated like she's heavy, she's fat, but she's she's not bloated. And I can recognize bloat in an instance. I can tell if you're bloated instantly because I know it because I've looked in the mirror. And uh <laughs> It's just one of those things, though, where it's like I'm very like in the same way I have hate dar. I've mentioned that I have hate dar, hate dar. I got hate dar. I've got hate dar where if you're being hateful, I know. I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you think you're fighting hate. I can tell if you're being hateful. I know it. I can smell it. I don't care what word you use. To me, it's not an intellectual concept. I know hate. I know what it is, and I, I can sniff it. It's like a, a spider sense or whatever it is, spidey sense. I have the same thing. I have bloat dar as well. I got bloat dar as well. I got bloat dar. Hey, I'm running for president, and I'm running on the platform of I've got hate dar, and I've got bloat dar. You elect me to be your president, and I'll let, I'll let everybody know who's bloated and who's hateful. Turns out a lot of bloated people are hateful. Being bloated makes you mean. You feel like shit. You don't want to be seen. You feel like shit, so like everything that enters into your consciousness, you just don't like. Being bloated makes you mean. And um, when you see it in other people, you also kind of shudder. You go, oh, oh, they're bloated. And if you've ever, like, fasted a little bit, like, if you've been doing that, like, I've noticed this going back to the weed, where, like, if I've been smoking weed again and I'm binge eating all the time, sometimes all it takes is a day of eating right. Like, you spend a day, a single, like, even if you've put on a few pounds, you spend a day eating right, maybe get a workout in, but it's not even workout dependent, but you spend a day eating right, and you do intermittent fasting, the next day, you feel and look so much better, because it eliminates a bunch of your bloat, and this is science here. Even if you've been bloated for two weeks, a month straight... You do that for one day. You eat right and you fast. Not like a big extended religious fast. You don't have to be a Muslim, 
on Ramadan, you just do it, do intermittent fasting, wait 16 hours, eat right and wait 16 hours. And the next day you will feel and look so much better and you want to keep it up. You're like, oh yeah, this is what it's like to feel human again. Where I don't feel like my gut is weighing me down. Where I don't feel like my clothes are hugging me in all the wrong places. It works wonders. And I recommend intermittent fasting to everybody. It's, a, it's easy. Once you get used to it, it's so easy. Your body adjusts. Because before I started intermittent fasting, I've been doing it for years. I've been doing it for many years now. And what you notice is like your body adjusts. Or like I used to think that I wasn't capable of waking up and going about my day without eating. Otherwise, I would get a headache. I'd be like, oh, I can't go three hours without eating after I wake up because I'll get a headache. Well, your body adjusts. Your body will suddenly not be hungry when you wake up if you get used to doing that. Your body develops discipline. And you, your mind no longer expects it either because your mind is the problem, you know, at the core of all this where your mind wants it. But uh, if you want to undo some bloat, just do a little bit of intermittent fasting and it goes away very quickly. You feel substantially better even just one day in. I'm not even kidding about that. Not even kidding. I, w- I, would, I wouldn't kid you about that. I wouldn't even kid you. So clearly I'm not a monk. But it's funny, like someone would probably hear what I'm saying and be like, oh my God, what you're saying is horrible. What you just, what you just said about women is freaking horrible. How dare you? How dare you? You know, somebody very well might feel that way, but it's like, it's funny if you actually listen to what I'm saying, which is that fat women can be really hot, but not all fat women are pretty or hot. Turns out not all women are pretty and hot, at least according to my standards. But Lana Del Rey, just to finish that thought, like, I'm not one of these people who really pays attention to her. But like I said, one of my best friends is a fanatic, which is how I even heard about her many years ago. I know she has kind of a cult following. I know she's big, but she has a cult following. But I saw where she gained quite a bit of weight, but she still has a womanly shape. Not There's no such thing as a womanly shape. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean when I say a womanly shape. And even though I've seen a couple photos of her where she looks kind of a little bit too bloated, a little too bloated, she still looks good, in my opinion. So that's, that's, that's how I think you know, about her, where it's like, she's a good example of where she's still pretty. Like it hasn't distorted her features because some people, they gain weight. And like, just like some people say, like, this is, this is a thing you don't hear very much is like, some people are like, Oh, every time I gain weight, it goes right to my thighs. Oh, when I gain weight, it goes right to my hips. Some people, it goes right to like a weird part of their head. Some people gain weight and their, their head gets really wide like, they don't just gain, like, a double chin or big cheeks. Like, it, it makes their entire head, like, it looks like it was put in a, uh, it looks like it was, like, smashed. And so, when you gain weight, it goes to weird parts of your body. You know, it's not all hips and thighs. It goes, sometimes it goes to the sides of your head in a weird way. But some people pull it off. You know, there's people who look good with a lot of weight on them. 
You know, I know that happened with, there's been a couple celebrity men who have been known as kind of like the fat funny guy, what we call the fat funny guy. Oh, you're one of them fat funny guys. And uh, they've lost weight and people don't like them anymore. And honestly, they look weird. I mean, Drew Carey is a good example. They, they, Drew Carey is a great example where I saw him on TV after he dropped all this weight and his skin is all taut. It doesn't look right. Drew Carey is meant to be fat. You heard it here. Drew Carey was meant to be fat. Good for him for getting in shape, but he doesn't look right. There was another guy who I've never even seen any of his movies, but, you know, a, a younger Jewish actor who's in, who was in a lot of comedies about 15 years ago, and he dropped a bunch of weight and couldn't get any roles. But I saw pictures of him, and he didn't look right either. That's a good example of a guy who needs at least a little bit of weight on him. That's the kind of fascist dictator I would be. It's like, you need to be fat, you need to be skinny, you need to be in between, you need to just retain your womanly shape. That'd be the kind of dictator I was. You need to not wear Old Navy shirts or European cut shirts. You need to not walk side by side in grocery store aisles and taking up the entire aisle. That'd be the kind of fascist totalitarian dictator I'd be. Be like, I like people of all sizes and types, but I'm very specific about which type each person should be. I like women of all sizes, but I'm very, very particular about which people are which size. Is that mean? No, I'd say it's very specific. <laughs> it's like I said about Buddhism. Buddhism is not misogynist. It's just very specific. I mean, the Dalai Lama says, if you're going to be the Dalai Lama, you got to be very attractive. If there's ever going to be a female Dalai Lama, she's got to be hot. She's got to have a very, very attractive face, and she can't be ugly. You know, he's not ugly either. The Dalai Lama's not an ugly guy. I don't know what the other ones looked like. He's a charming, he's a, he's a nice looking guy. Like you look at the Dalai Lama and, you know, he, he's just a nice looking man. Oh, you got a thing for the Dalai Lama? He looks the part. You know, he looks the part, which I think is probably part of it. You know, they act like, when they when they choose the new Dalai Lama, they act like, oh... We know that he's the reincarnated Lama because of this, this, and this. They, they have all these esoteric reasons for choosing the new Dalai Lama. It's a very mystical process. The reality is they probably just look at somebody and they're like, you look the part. You look like somebody who should be the Dalai Lama. And, you know, his emphasis on a woman's looks, well, that kind of adds to my theory here. But no, I mean, th this is what's missing from from all the conversations. Exactly this, where it's just like we get into this idea, like you go from making generalizations to making other generalizations. You go from being like, oh, we've defined attractiveness in this one specific way. And we've kind of generalized like what attractiveness is. And then you turn around and you generalize it in this completely different way where it's not based on any standard. And let me tell you, everybody has standards for what they like. I mean, I know I'm not gay because, like, years ago, back before all the liberal women turned on Chris Pratt, they were, like, uh, they were all into him. 
And then it came out that he's like a Christian Republican and they're like, ew, I can tell you men wouldn't do that. Men wouldn't find out that some like hot actress is a Christian Republican and be like, I hate her now. She's so ugly. Women did that with Chris Pratt. Like they found out that his politics and beliefs weren't convenient and then they just hated him. But I know I'm not gay because like I remember female friends talking about like him. They were talking about like guys they like and they're like, oh, dude, Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt and Bradley Cooper. And I was like, I don't even. It's not like I look at those guys and I'm like, they're ugly. Because like I've said before, like. You're a closeted gay man. If you don't recognize handsomeness in another man. You are an insecure closeted gay man. If you can't look at another man and know whether he's attractive or not. Like you can look at a dog and know whether he's attractive or not. You can look at a flower or a tree and know whether it's more, more picturesque than another tree. If you, if you have this attitude of like, I don't even know what a handsome man is because uh, I'm not gay. You're either stupid or you're secretly gay if that's your attitude. Because like, there, you know, it's just aesthetics. Like you can tell if some men are just handsome men and it doesn't make you a gay man to think that if you're talking about it a little too much maybe if you're a little preoccupied with it maybe but that's okay but if you're preoccupied with it that's another story but but there are times like it's always when I hear women talking about men they're attracted to that I realize like oh I'm definitely not gay because like if a woman's like like one time I, I had a, a girlfriend who was like oh I think George Clooney's really hot and I'm like yeah I get it I get why a woman would think George Clooney is an attractive man. Like, I can recognize that George Clooney has a handsome face. You know, I, I can recognize why George Clooney has an aesthetically pleasing face. I can rec, Dude, I totally get it. I totally get why you like George Clooney. No, but you can just... You look at George Clooney. It's, like, obvious why a woman would be attracted to him. Brad Pitt. Like, oh, I, I have no idea why a woman would ever find Brad Pitt attractive. You can understand why a woman would find Brad Pitt attractive. But when I heard, like, these women talking about uh, Chris Pratt, they were, like, talking about their celebrity crushes, and they talked about, like, Chris Pratt and Bradley Cooper, and I was just like, man, yeah, I don't understand. Not that I think these are ugly guys. Not like I'm like, these are freaks of nature. I'm just like, you're definitely seeing something. Like, this is definitely... And women do women say that about uh, things men like as well, where they're like, they can understand if you're attracted to a certain type of woman. But sometimes women are just like, I don't see it. I don't see it. And like I had a girlfriend who was very artsy. And uh, like we would, you know, we didn't have one of those relationships where you're talking about like celebrities you find hot or anything like that but we were having a conversation one time and like her idea of a hot woman was like debbie harry and and i, I was like my idea of a hot woman's ashley tisdale and she was like fuck you <laughs> you know in a, in a funny way but still like you know that, that was the sort of thing where it's like she liked the idea of this very like aesthetic like nimble short-haired rocker and I was just like, I like Ashley Tisdale. I like that girl, Ashley Tisdale. You know, just one of those things. Like, I understand why she wouldn't necessarily get it. But I just, Ashley Tisdale's hot. 
But uh, no, it's that sort of thing where like you'll hear women talking about a guy and you're just like, yeah, I don't, I'm definitely not part of this conversation. And, uh, but some people are just, some people just pull off their look. Some people are just aesthetically pleasing, you know, by any objective standard, you know? I mean, it's the same thing for women. Like, you know, there are women that I'm not sexually or romantically attracted to, but I can still tell they're pretty. I just don't care. You know, it's one of those things where I'm like, I understand that she's beautiful. And like now they're figuring out that like human beings make a biological distinction between hotness and beauty, which I've always known. So the science is always catching up to what we already know, where it's like, I could have told you that when I was five years old. I could have told you that we make a distinction between sexual hotness and beauty. The second that I came out of the womb and and looked around the earth, you know, it's like that study I always bring up where it's like we discovered we did a study and we found out that crows and ravens and corvids have consciousness and reflective thought. Every single Native American could have told you that a million times over, and they did, because that's what every frickin' story they tell is about. Why do you think Odin had two ravens? Why do you think, you know, why do you think all pagan people gravitated toward crows and ravens? You had to, you had to waste money? You had to flush money down the toilet to do a study to tell us what we already intuitively knew. I knew that when I came upon a crow funeral. When I was out on a walk and I, 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 I found a dead crow laying on its back and on the power lines above it, there were probably a couple dozen crows looking down and cawing in the most strange way. And I, I've come across a lot of crows in my life. There's a lot of them in Western Washington. And I saw this crow funeral, and I've since learned that that's real. I've since learned that it's an observable phenomenon, that crows have funerals. They also have meetings, which, I again, I've seen in person. I saw hundreds upon hundreds of crows coming from all directions to meet at this, uh, this empty lot. And they were congregating like they were having a convention. And I was like, holy shit, that's like, a, that's like the Western Washington Crow Convention. That's like the National Assembly. And it turns out they even have trials. I'm not even kidding you. Corvids are known to have trials. Some scientist just came upon, or, or somebody, some wildlife person, discovered that there was a crow trial where several crows were seemingly on, you know, seemingly being, their fate was being determined. I don't know what would have happened, but there was some kind of crow trial. And yet we have to throw money away to find all this stuff out that you can just figure out from watching them. I could have told you there's a difference between hotness and beauty when I was five years old. Before I'd ever even gotten an erection. Before I'd ever gotten an erection. You know? All my friends could have told you that too. Because we would talk about it. 
and that stuff comes out and it's like, we've discovered something new. It's like, haven't you ever listened to yourself? Haven't you ever listened to your internal feelings and thoughts? Haven't you ever felt sensations? Haven't you ever noticed that you find some women beautiful, but you don't really feel a sexual attraction to them? Why do you think I have a fetish for white trash women, but I've never dated one? Why do you think that when I look at smut, I gravitate toward women with, you know, big hair and fake tans? Not, not that I really gravitate toward that, but I wouldn't even be able to tell you. I wouldn't even be able to describe it exactly. But hotness, like you see a, a white trash woman and it's like, sometimes they're just really hot. Why do people like me? Ha why did we at an early age have such a thing for Peg Bundy from Married with Children? Why do you think that like I, I entertained detailed sexual fantasies? Excuse me, but I'm making a scientific point here. Why do you think when I was a little kid and hit puberty, why do you think that I had vivid sexual fantasies about Peg Bundy and not necessarily a supermodel? Like I couldn't have cared less about Rebecca, Rebecca Romaine Stamos or whatever her name is. I couldn't have cared less about most of the Victoria's Secret models. I recognize that they're beautiful. They're attractive. But why do you think that I'm, I see like a second of Married with Children and all of my fantasies are realized for a week? I could have told you that. Just funny though. Just funny. It's for the same reason. Like I've had female friends who are way more sexually attracted to bros. Like they might be girls who like when push comes to shove, they date like artsy men who talk in upspeak. But they also see like a bro with like stupid tribal tattoos at a bar. And they're just like, you can tell they're fawning over him. It's the same thing. Women, are, women do it too. They watch Married with Children and they see Al Bundy. No, I don't know. I don't know if they're into Al Bundy. Al Bundy. Who's Al Bundy? Just a funny thing. I wonder though, you know, I wonder if uh, the Dalai Lama knows the difference between hotness and beauty. I wonder if he wants the female Dalai Lama to be hot or beautiful or both. Because some people manage to be both. Some women manage to be both. Maybe that's what he wants for the female Dalai Lama. She's got to be hot and beautiful. She's got to be firing on all cylinders. I wonder if he has a very vivid idea. I wonder if he knows exactly, like if he has an ideal. It seems like he's thought about it. He's brought it up in many different interviews. Like those quotes I read were from like five years apart. And then he said he'd been talking about it with other people for 30 years. That'd be cool if he was fat and hot. That'd be cool if the female Dalai Lama ended up being both fat and hot. With kind of that natural tan. Kind of a natural tan. She, she would have that olive skin. 
the female Dalai Lama, she's got to have that olive skin and that kind of, she's got to be kind of fat but not bloated. She's got to have just kind of a natural olive complexion. And a very, very attractive face. As as the Dalai Lama said, she's got to have a very, very attractive face and she cannot be ugly. probably true of a female president too if there's ever going to be a female u.s president she's probably got to be hot you know if the female dalai lama has to be hot i think uh, so does the first female president i'm trying to think of who would be in the running i don't find aoc attractive i think that might be even be the first time that i've ever mentioned her like i recognize that she's pretty I just don't find her very attractive, and not for political reasons. She has those crazy eyes, which I don't like. She has those eyes that I always talk about, the big, huge eyes where you can see the white above the iris. I don't find that attractive. Like, I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, she's a crazy girl. Oh, dude, I always like the crazy girls. I always like the crazy girls, dude. I'm not one of those guys. If I see those eyes, I'm instantly turned off. And AOC does those eyes all the time. I feel like half the pictures of her I've seen, she's doing that face. I just don't like it. You know, obviously Kamala's not attractive. Here I am just, I'm just rating all the female politicians. I, I mean, what conservative women, I mean, everyone calls Tulsi Gabbard like a covert Republican. I don't even know much about her. She's attractive. Yeah, she's hot. Tulsi Gabbard's hot. Um, but I'm not I'm not gay, but I think Obama being Biden's very handsome. I don't know. Trumpsfeld. Trumpsfeld's the most handsome president. <laughs> Trumpsfeld's the <laughs> just like George Clooney. Here's the thing, I'm not gay, but I can recognize when another man is handsome. And I got to say, just like George Clooney or Brad Pitt, you you see him and you go, okay, you know, I I understand why a woman would like them. It's just like Trumpsfeld. It's just like Donald Trumpsfeld. It's like you see Donald Trumpsfeld and you know why a a woman's attracted to him. That's how you know people are lying, though. I've said this before, but it's like all the people who who don't think Melania's hot. Like, give me a break. She's hot and beautiful. I don't care what you think about Trumpsfeld. You know, Melania, you know, she was a supermodel, but she's also, you know, she, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to go on about it, but, you know, I saw a lot of, like, there was something where it was like, we're ranking the hottest. There was something in one of those big magazines, one of those corporate news magazines where they're like, we're, we're rating like the most attractive first ladies in history. And it was, I think it was like Michelle Obama or something. And it's like, you know, you guys are dishonest because I don't care what you think about Trumpsfeld. How can Melania not be at the top of that list? Like you're getting into two, you're splitting too many hairs. You're outing yourself if you're not putting Melania at the top of that list. You know, because I didn't even know she was that hot. 
Like, I didn't pay any attention to her when Trump saw was running and all that. Like, I heard people talk about her. I saw her in passing. But it wasn't until I actually, like, looked up pictures of her from earlier in her life. And I actually really looked at her that I was like, oh, yeah. You know, like, duh. Duh. But still, it's one of those things where it's like, if you're doing, like, a top 100, like, most attractive first ladies and you're not putting her at the top, I mean, you're signaling. You know, just put her at the top and then do your signaling. Put her at the top of the list. Say whatever you want about her. I don't really care, do you? (laughs) I don't really care, do you? Wow. But uh, it's that type of thing. But the funny thing is, is like that's the world we're in where it's like saying Melania is the most attractive first lady to ever be in the White House you say that and somebody like thinks you're betraying their cause like a Democrat, a Democrat or a, uh, you know, somebody on the left. Like if you say that you think Melania is hot, like you're not even allowed to acknowledge that. Like you're not even allowed to give a disclaimer and say like, I hate Trump's but his wife is really pretty. You're not even allowed to say that for the same reasons that everybody turned on Chris Pratt And they were like, dude, Chris Pratt's like totally my celebrity crush. Oh, dude, Chris Pratt's my celebrity boy crush. And then he comes out as a Christian Republican and people are like, I never liked him. I hate him. Dude, he's gross. I bet he's bad in bed. I bet he's got a tiny dicky. I bet Chris Pratt's got a tiny dicky. I saw people fighting about that. During the BLM protests and riots and all that. I saw this picture of a girl holding a sign that said, like, racism is small dick energy. That's one of those catchphrases that people use. Dude, that's small dick energy. I know small dick energy when I see it. I'll say that. But, uh, you know, I saw she was holding a sign that said racism is small dick energy. And I saw people fighting about that. And they're like, isn't that body shaming? Isn't that body shaming to say racism is small dick energy? It's like, that's why this is just torture. It's why people just torture themselves with this stuff. Like, just let her say that, man. Just let her call racist small dick energy. Just let her do it. Let her do it. Get her done. Like, she agrees with you. And she's doing the whole, like, mocking people you hate thing. That's what people do. They insult people's dickies. They'll always do that. People will always insult their enemy's dicky. Don't try to tell her to stop. It doesn't matter. I don't know if we're supposed to say that. The whole point of attacking your enemies is to say whatever you want. But don't deny the truth. Don't deny that Melania is hot. If you had some stupid crush on Chris Pratt because he was on Parks and Rec 10 years ago and you don't like him anymore, you don't find him attractive anymore because you found out he loves God and he watches Tucker Carlson, well, I don't really trust you. I don't really trust your taste. But, uh, cause like, I, I know that I'm not attracted to people based on politics. I can tell you that much. 
my attraction for women is not based on their politics. If it was, I probably never would have dated a single woman. I don't think I've really ever agreed with a girlfriend's politics completely. What else we got here? This has been a good one. <laughs> here I thought like a half an hour in, I was like, oh shit. Oh shit. This is incendiary. I'm talking about uh, the historical misogyny of Buddhism. I'm talking about how shallow, how shallow the Dalai Lama is. And for the last hour, I've just been raiding women. I've been raiding female politicians. Yeah, I think she's an eight. I think she's a seven. I think she's a. I think she's a ten. Now I don't know of any tens involved in politics. I'm. Tr- I'm trying to think here. I'm trying to think if there's a woman involved in politics, regardless of her political party, who I just I have a crush on or anything like that. Who is there? There's nobody. That that should tell you everything you need to know about my politics fact that like i can't even think of a single woman involved in politics today who i'm like yeah you know whether i agree with her or not she's hot i just don't feel that way i feel like our politics are completely devoid of anything attractive anything that speaks to you on some instinctual level i feel like it's all just gone i feel like it doesn't attract the people that i'm attracted to it's just all just down the drain I mean, girls love Justin Trudeau. All the liberal girls I know talk about Justin Trudeau nonstop. Another one, that's like the Chris Pratt thing, where like, not in a million years would I be able to be like, oh, I understand. I totally get why you like Justin Trudeau. You like his politics or something. You like that he's young. He looks like Robin Williams to me. Justin Trudeau just looks like Robin Williams. Not that that's an insult. Just, he looks like Robin Williams. He looks like Robbie Williams. No, he looks like Robin Williams. But no, I, I just can't even think of anything now. I think it's it's a good time to end this one. <laughs> one hour and 40 minutes, Jesus. Yeah, we're going to call it good. We covered all the all the right topics. All the things that needed to be said were said. This is like five hours of talking today. That's about it. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can